Welcome to the Essay for FA's Asset Allocator podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors, including ETFs, asset allocation, and the economy. I am your host, Bill Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Evan Powers, a financial advisor and principal of Cypress Financial Planning in Charlottesville, Virginia. Evan has recently argued that the trillions of dollars flowing into passive at the expense of active overstates just how passive we can be as investors. Hey there, Evan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Gil. I appreciate it. Great. Well, um, I happen to read your latest client newsletter in which you wrote that the massive shift from active to passive investment we've seen in the last decade, something of a chimera with 3 million stock indexes in the world versus just 40,000 stocks. You argue that just choosing the benchmark is 70 times more active a decision than choosing a stock. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. So I think a large point of the conversation that has been had of the shift from passive to active investing kind of deals with a little bit of an issue of how we define passive investing. Uh, I think the most common definition for passive investing is that basically anything that tracks an index is a passive investing by nature. Um, but as you mentioned, with so many different stock indexes out there to track, not just in the U.S., but globally, there are many, many times more indexes to choose from than actual investments, actual companies uh, to choose from. So in trying to survey, you know, a lot of some of those indexes have ETFs that track them currently. Some of them don't. But both from an individual investor's perspective and from an investment manager's perspective, choosing to track an index is a very act, is very active decision. So just saying, well, I'm going to follow an, an index and deciding that that's passive is not really a passive decision because looking into what that index tracks, how that index changes over time, what the weighting of that index is, all of those things are very active decisions. So even if you choose to engage in index investing, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a passive choice to begin with or on an ongoing basis. Okay, then. So how do you as a financial advisor go about actively managing your clients' investments with passive funds? So there's a couple of different ways to to answer that. So for us, fund selection is something that we do on an ongoing basis. So we have a group of funds that we use across different asset classes. We know that passive in general works better in some asset classes than others. You know, the shift from passive to active has been strongest in U.S. equities um, because that's where that's where the outperformance for passive versus active has been most obviously demonstrated. So that's one area that we, that we have to look at. Um, but basically, there's, there's a couple different things we'll do. One, we will choose the asset class mix very actively, right? So one, we have fund selection. Look at each individual asset class that we want to incorporate into a client portfolio and then choose a fund that is an appropriate fund for that asset class. In some asset classes, that's difficult. In some asset classes, you don't know really which index to track and you don't know if there's an ETF out there that's liquid, that has a good track record that you can really make a case for putting in a client portfolio. Once we find out that there is a good fund and is a good asset class or a good uh, ETF, a good passive fund to incorporate for that asset class, We'll, of course, monitor that and make sure that we know if there are new funds, new entrants into the market in that area. We'll, we'll consider those as they come along. So that's one area that's, you know, we, we choose the overall portfolio allocation that we want to have a diversified portfolio and choose individual funds and then monitor, make sure they're still appropriate and still doing what we expect them to do, in other words, and make sure that they're actually performing as they say they will perform compared to the index. 
But in addition to that, there's a lot of kind of individually active strategies that we will engage in for clients. Uh, as I said a minute ago, passive beats active most clearly in U.S. equities. It's a little bit less clear in some other uh, asset classes. Fixed income is a perfect example. So U.S. fixed income, especially investment grade fixed income, passive doesn't beat active that much more clearly. Um, there, it's one of the areas over the last five, 10 years, almost no matter what time horizon you want to look at, active management actually can beat passive management. Um, does that mean we choose an active fund for our clients? Not so much, but what we will actually do is go out and individually select individual bonds for our, for our clients and build individual bond ladders for our clients, structured bond ladders. We'll usually use that in conjunction with some passive funds that we're also using um, just from you know, trying to manage liquidity for our clients. Individual bonds aren't nearly as liquid, um, but those are some things we'll do. So, so a bond ladder is one example. We'll use certain market-linked CDs when they're appropriate. Um, just little little ways to, to kind of add little active strategies around kind of recognizing that using pure passive funds and never changing your, your allocations to them isn't really a good winning strategy over the long run. So besides fixed income, where are the other areas in which actively managed funds retain an edge over their passive cousins? The deeper and more liquid and more heavily traded a market is, the more passive is going to have an edge. So if you look at things where there's less liquidity, where there's a little less depth in the market, that's usually the areas, those are usually the areas where you're going to see a little bit more of, a, of an, an edge to active. So bond liquidity there's a lot of depth to bond markets. There's a ton of bonds out there. They don't trade nearly as often. It's a lot of, by nature, their bonds, their long-term buy and hold investments, they don't necessarily trade all that often. So that's an area where, because of that lack of liquidity, an active manager can actually find a lot of opportunity and add a lot of value. So that's obviously one area. Other areas that don't have as much depth, international markets, international bonds, emerging markets in particular are one that where there's liquidity can change and be all, a little all over the place. Some of the um, costs and benefits of being in emerging markets to begin with actually can, can tend to uh, yield some, some outperformance to active strategies there as well. So um, those are some areas where we have considered at the moment we're not using uh, outside active managers in our portfolios. But they are some areas where there is a stronger argument for using some active strategies. What would you do for the emerging markets component of your clients' portfolios? You're not currently using active managers. I get that. But what do you do there? So at the moment, we are primarily we're using a Vanguard fund, the Vanguard uh, Emerging Markets Fund. One of the reasons we're doing that is because it is deep. It's liquid as an actual, you know, probably more liquid actually than some of the securities it invests in, which is its own, could be its own issue. But it is, it has been a well-proven uh, emerging markets fund. It makes sense with some of the other funds we're using. Um, and it's actually performed fairly well with what we expect it to do. So when we, when we are using emerging markets, we tend to just use that Vanguard fund. Some of the problems, as I said, with, with some of the active funds that are available out there uh, becomes some, something of a matter of our comfort with using them, uh, their track record, and, and whether you can actually make a, a long-term case for them outperforming on an ongoing basis, uh, the, fee and, the, the fee and having to pass that fee on to our clients, and, and also liquidity involved. Liquidity is not always as big an issue with some of the, some of the larger actively managed funds, but um, some of those other issues I kind of mentioned can, can come into the conversation. Um, it's not, it's not, a hard, not a hard sale for most of our clients to, to use a Vanguard fund that has a long track record that performs pretty close to what we'd expect. 
Now, as a financial planner, do you manage investment portfolios for clients or do you oversee, as it were, the client's entire net worth? So we do both. We, we definitely, we view ourselves as a comprehensive planner. So we certainly uh, want to take all of their various assets into consideration. So we want to know what their real estate holdings are. We want to know uh, what they've got in certain 401k plans that we may not be able to, to manage directly. Um, but if they have, if they do have investments that they would like managed professionally, uh, we would put ourselves in a position to, uh, to manage those investments as well. So sometimes clients don't want that. Sometimes clients want multiple managers working alongside each other. That's something we've had experience with where, you know, we, we want to know what's going on and what that other manager's doing. Uh, we like to kind of be the, the, the quarterback in charge of those relationships. But there are definitely situations where we're not the only investment manager working on a client's uh, investments as as part of their overall net worth. Uh, But we want to be in a position where we at least know what that other manager is doing to the degree that it might impact what we would do. You just mentioned a client's home is one asset you look into. So I'm curious to get your take on this. In a recent podcast, I, I talked about this. What if a high net worth client's real estate holdings were low compared to his net worth, but he was disinclined to buy more real estate? What would you advise someone in these circumstances to do to build out a diversified portfolio with the advantages of countercyclicality? Sure. So for us, uh, we, we, we do have a fairly standard allocation to real estate, both, both U.S. and global through some, some REITs and REIT ETFs. So that tends to be a fairly standard portion of a portfolio, 5 to 10%, depending on the client, usually is there to begin with. So for us, it's probably more likely to go in reverse, uh, at least in my experience with my clients, where we may dial back the exposure that we have to REITs and to, to real estate because that client has a particularly high exposure to real estate already. Um, and that can be a, actually can be a couple ways. So talking about counter-cyclicality, we, may, we have certain clients who are invested in the real estate business, either as realtors or real estate developers, and their long-term financial picture is very heavily dependent on the performance of real estate. We may not want to double down on that by also holding real estate exposure for them. So for us, we're like, I've more likely seen it in, in reverse. Um, where I'm, where I take back what is normally a fairly standard uh, real estate exposure, um, rather than somebody who wants to increase it but but doesn't want to personally manage it. So I, I would probably advise that client to have a standard exposure to to U.S. and global REITs, which I think over long terms for us, we like REITs because they do perform something of a hybrid role in a portfolio. They they tend to throw off income, um, much like some high yield bond funds but they don't have high correlations with stock markets like a lot of high-yield bond funds do. So we like REITs because they do have that kind of uh, low correlation, but potentially high return profile for our clients. Okay, but one of the advantages potentially or historically of having real estate would be something that moves in a sort of different glide path than uh, equities. What do you do for clients, essentially for downside protection? When markets do go down, what's there for them to kind of stabilize their portfolios? So I think we, we do that in a number of different ways. So for one, you know, we, we hope that we have enough different non-correlated assets or at least lowly correlated assets in the portfolio that they're not overly exposed to any one individual market. So right now, for example, uh, the U.S. market's on a very long, uh, toward, you know, maybe, maybe not the end, but toward you know, a very advanced period of a long bull market that's, that's expanded for several years. It's had very strong returns for a number of years now. 
That's not completely true about emerging markets. It's not true about developed international markets. It's outperformed for a long time. Now, it may be, like you said, that if the U.S. market goes into a prolonged uh, downturn, that that's a global downturn. In that case, international exposure is not necessarily going to help you very much. So that's where we want to have real estate exposure. We want to have bond exposure. We want to have some liquidity, some cash holdings for them, whether whether it's a, a short-term fund that's actually in their investment portfolio or an emergency fund that's held outside of their portfolio. We want to make sure that they're protected on both sides, um, both to have some uh, dry powder in the investment portfolio, but also some dry powder in their actual bank accounts. So you know, every, every economic downturn is unique. Everyone is a little bit different. Obviously, in the last downturn, it was caused by essentially real estate. Um, so there was a very high correlation in that particular downturn between real estate and the stock market. That's not necessarily true in every recession. Um, some recessions can actually be quite good for real estate in some ways. It depends on the, the nature and what, what's actually kind of causing the, the downturn. Where are you finding value for clients right now in this market? So there's a couple of things, um, you know, wh- where we found it recently, I think, as we think through last year um, and what we did last year to prepare for what's happened so far this year and how that's helped. You know, last year, I think there was some you know, decent value in intermediate term bonds, right? So 10-year yields spiked from as low as one and a half a couple of years ago to three and three and a quarter. We were able to get some pretty high quality investment grade U.S. bonds last year that were paying 4% or more. That was a great source of value last year. Now, 10-year yields back below 2% or right around 2%, not quite as much value there. So some of the, some of, basically some of where we're finding value now is actually on the shorter, shorter end, where now we have an inverted yield curve. Now you're actually able to get some pretty short-term bonds at a, at a decent um, a, a decent rate where if the Fed does start cutting rates soon, that could be a great place to find value. Other things we're doing, International has been an underperformer compared to the U.S. market over the last several years. And I think that's somewhere where there's a lot of value to be found right now. I think there's a lot of uncertainty, um, both in terms of emerging markets when it comes to China and trade conversations. And when it comes to developed markets in Europe and Brexit and some of those conversations, I think a lot of that uncertainty has yielded some potential value. And that's, that's where we're kind of looking for value right now, more so than, than in U.S. markets specifically. Sharp observations from a smart advisor, Evan Powers of Cypress Financial Planning. Thanks so much, Gil. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can contact me at gil at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests. And make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts.